If you will, turn with me to Genesis 19. Genesis chapter 19, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Now we'll pick up the rest of this passage next week. I was going to go all the way through verse 29, and then I gauged my sermon and realized that was unrealistic. And I thought about going all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 38, and I knew that was even more unrealistic. But this whole chapter hangs together. And so really, I had written it as one sermon with four points, and now it's going to be one sermon with one point and three points next week. But what I'm asking you to do is to see this as part one, and next week as part two, really of one long sermon. So look with me at Genesis 19 and verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn And he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray that he blesses it to our hearing. Father, we ask that as we consider this passage, knowing that the judgment that comes for Sodom that follows this wicked sin, understanding that our own world, the culture around us is, is caught up with a similar kind of wickedness. Understanding perhaps even more importantly that we are a people who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have had the work of your son placarded before us in his word, in his life and death and resurrection, that as those people, we stand even more accountable than these sinners in Sodom to repent of our sins, and to believe. 
Help us to understand your word clearly. May your spirit work to transform our hearts and minds as we study it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we begin, and next week we will finish, what is an infamous biblical passage. It's a text about which there has been no little dispute among the ideologues. It's not really disputed, though, and I want you to hear this, it's not really disputed because it lacks clarity. It's not a hard passage to understand. You do not need some kind of refined Hebrew language and exegetical skill to understand this passage. In fact, I would argue this passage is disputed precisely because it is jarringly clear. In other words, it's not subject to dispute because it's an unclear passage. It is subject to dispute because it offends people. Let me give you some other examples of texts that we presently like to call unclear because they offend us. So I want to be an equal opportunity offender this morning. Because the Lord is. You ready? Ephesians 5.24. Wives, submit. And by the way, that word submit just means obey. Submit to your husbands in everything. Have you ever chewed on that one for a bit? Controversial. Not unclear, but certainly controversial. Submit to your husbands in everything. Well, do you mean when they ask us to sin? Of course not. Of course not. Well, do you mean it's okay for me to keep on submitting if they're being physically abusive? Of course not. Come see us. We'll help you with that in a variety of ways. But in the ordinary course of marriage, you understand what I mean by ordinary? Not abusive, not asking you to sin. In the ordinary course of marriage, wives are commanded to obey their husbands in everything. Not unclear, really controversial. I assume I'll have a flood of questions after I say that. How about this one? 1 Timothy 2.12, where we know from 1 Timothy 3 that we're getting instructions for the household of God or the church. So this isn't talking about running for public office or something like that or your corporate business. But the church, 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that passage is unclear. Let's hear it again. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man in the church. Is that unclear? Or just troubling to our current cultural moment? Proverbs 13:24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Again, we're not talking about abuse here. Not talking about abuse. We're talking about disciplining. I hear parents all the time, I never needed to raise my hand to my children. Solomon's response, you hate them then. You hate them then. If you love them, You would be diligent to discipline them. You would teach them that bad decisions are painful. And you would teach them that bad decisions are painful because the bad decisions they make as a five-year-old that are painful are not nearly as bad 
or nearly as painful as the bad decisions they make as a 25-year-old. So you want to raise them in such a way. Ephesians 1.11. Totally different kind of text, but offends a lot of people. Unclear. In him, in Christ, we, we believers, obtain an inheritance. Having been, you ready? Having been predestined. That means your destiny was determined beforehand. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you know what's not in there about your predestination? Anything you did or decided. That is perfectly clear as a text. People don't like it, though. So they say it's unclear. Or how about 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Now what he's speaking of here is if a man's trying to look like a woman. That's what he's speaking of. He's not talking about hairstyles in the same way we might talk about hairstyles. He's talking about the attempt to look like a woman or the attempt to look like a man. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So the woman who cuts her hair short, that's a disgrace. The man who grows his hair long, that's a disgrace. What's he saying? When you are blurring sexual distinctions, that's a disgrace. Really clear, not popular in our current cultural moment. In fact, a lot of the brands are now moving to gender-neutral clothing. Or how about Matthew 10, 28? And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell is real. It's eternal. It's horrific. It's coming for everyone who doesn't trust in Jesus Christ. Not unclear. Also not popular. Those texts, none of them are unclear. They are culturally unpopular. Every single one of them. I could multiply a lot of examples like this. A lot. But my point is that we live in a time in which even among Christians, all the biblical texts we do not like are dealt with by saying things like this. Those are controversial and unclear texts. Scholars are divided over them. That's true, by the way. Scholars are divided over almost every passage, but not because every passage is unclear. Scholars are often divided over passages because they don't like what they say. The culture was different then, also true. We aren't sure how to apply those now. That does take some work. To be sure, there are issues to work through with every text of Scripture. We must always understand texts in their context. We must always understand texts within the whole redemptive narrative of Scripture. We must always think through the proper application of texts in particular contexts. We understand that. But we do not just dismiss texts as unclear because they make us bristle culturally. Because we don't want to obey them. R.C. Sproul used to say, when asked about how he grows in sanctification, he's with the Lord now, but how do you grow in sanctification? Dr. Sproul was a question I heard asked at a panel, and he said this. Well, I go through my Bible, and everything it says I don't like, I know that's an area I need to repent and grow. That's pretty simple. We are considering a passage in Genesis 
that speaks to a regional judgment of God against a wicked people, a people given over to homosexuality. And in a day when we treat homosexuality as a personal identity, and I'm going to pick up on this more next week, in a day when we treat homosexuality as a personal identity rather than as a moral perversity, this passage does not go over well. Friends, I want to make clear, I hear this kind of personal identity language seeping into the Christian culture as well. I hear people saying, even after committing some sin, they commit adultery, they come meet with us, and they say, that's not who I am. Who cares? It is what you did. It is what you did. I don't even know what that means. That's not who I am. We are never arguing as Christians that your personal identity and your behavior are the same thing. Yes, the Bible may refer to you as an adulterer or a thief or a murderer, but the Bible is not using modern categories of personal identity. The Bible is referring to your sinful behavior and attitudes. When the Bible talks about your personal identity, it says this, you're an image bearer of God a child of Adam, a human being, body and soul, with a rational and immortal soul, created in true righteousness and holiness, who's fallen into sin. That's who you are. We do not reduce human beings to their sinful behavior and say that's who they are. In fact, I would argue that the personal identity movement is reductionistic in a way that it dehumanizes people. You just become your base impulses. Further, among Christians, I increasingly hear the claim that someone who has same-sex attraction cannot change. If they have same-sex attraction, they can't change. Well, they may not change to the degree that they hope to change. We all know we struggle with various sins, and we don't always expunge every remnant of those sins in our lives, so they may not change to the degree they hope they, cha- they would change. They might But they can change. Your slavery to sin is not inviolable. The Lord frees you from slavery to sin, and he can sanctify you even to the point where certain sins are no longer having a grip on you. Let me take this one more step. We increasingly hear Christians arguing that the desire of same-sex relations, that the desire is not itself sinful, only the act is sinful. In a number of places, though, The Bible speaks about, now listen, dishonorable passions or sinful desires. There are sinful desires. There are dishonorable passions. And homosexuality is one of them. The Bible's clear about that. You'll see as we go on. Homosexuality is a sin. People can repent. They can change. We do believe the Holy Spirit can transform people. When we say that people cannot change, we are fundamentally denying the power of the Holy Spirit. Homosexual desire is itself sin. The Bible does condemn perverse desires, disordered desires, even if you didn't choose those desires. We all are struggling with disordered or sinful desires we didn't choose. Do you remember waking up one day and going, when I'm older, these will be my disordered desires. 
Those desires are an effect of the corruption of the fall. All sexual desire that is disordered is a sinful desire, a disordered passion that must be repented of. Listen, Adam and Eve did not have homosexual desire before the fall. If not for the fall, no man would. Such desires are part and parcel of the corruption of sin. With that said, I want to look at this passage by way of four remembrances today, and I'm only going to get to one of them. So I'm going to give you all four now so you're ready for next week. Here's what they are. The first one is, remember Sodom? That's today. I'm a little depressed that we're ending there because that's not a great place to end. But remember Sodom. Second one, remember Lot's sons-in-law. Remember Lot's sons-in-law. I'll pick that up next week. Third one, remember Lot's wife. We'll pick that up next week. And fourth, remember Lot. So those will be the four movements we make through this text. And it's our first point that bears the most controversy. So we will begin there, and we may not, well, we will not get past the first point. Remember Sodom. Remember Sodom, that's the first point. What is the sin of Sodom? Look at Genesis 19, 1 through 11 again. Note what's happened. We have two angels. We had heard about the two angels. If you remember, there were three people who came to, or appearances to Abraham in the preceding passage. Two of those angels went down to Sodom. Abraham had been interceding on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah that God would not destroy them if there were righteous people there. There weren't, other than Lot. And so God was going to destroy them. And the two angels come down to Sodom to observe, not because the Lord doesn't know what's happening in Sodom. That's precisely why he got Abraham engaged in interceding for them. But because he wants to make clear what's happening in Sodom and then save Lot and his family and rain down judgment. So the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. We're going to pick some of this up about Lot next week. Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Now note the language. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Lot knows there's something amiss in the city because as the angels come, hurry up into my house, let's eat quick and get you out of here early. So you know already there's a problem and Lot's aware there's a problem. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, now listen to the description of the men, both young and old, both young and old, all the people to the last man. So how many of the men? All of them to the last man, both young and old. Unclear? Not unclear. Surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. 
But they said, stand back. And they said, by the way, whenever you're pointing out sin or trying to stop sin, this is exactly what you hear from every culture. This fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. You guys heard that one before? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. That's the angels. They brought him in and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. Now catch this. So that they wore themselves out groping for the door. The angels just struck every man in the city blind. And they didn't say, well, we're in sin, we should stop. What's this? They wore themselves out groping for the door. They were unrelenting in their sin. All the men of Sodom, young and old, are consumed with homosexual desire. They reject even the offer of Lot's daughters. I'll deal with that next week. It's a wicked offer Lot makes, just to be clear. But I'll come to it next week. And even after being blinded by the angels, they continue to grope after a chance to know these two men. The blindness that they are struck with, and they're continuing to grope at the door, is almost parabolic regarding the state of their hearts, isn't it? And their minds. But here's where the controversy comes in. What does it mean to know someone? If you notice that, look at verse 5, the very last phrase. Bring them out to us that we may know them. What does it mean to know? Now, for those of you who don't know Hebrew, who haven't learned this, let me tell you first, this Hebrew word, in most cases in the Old Testament, in most cases, if we're just doing a number count, like we took the word and we searched for it and counted up all the occurrences, in most cases does not mean to know them sexually. It does not mean sexual knowledge, intimacy in that way. In most cases. Therefore, on the basis of word count, and then on the basis of Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50, some scholars claim that this text is not about homosexual sin. They say it's about, and I read scholars who said this, about a lack of hospitality. I'll say, I can't think of anything more inhospitable than this. But that's what they're going to go after. Now, listen to Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50 as to why they say that. Behold, this was the guilt. Here's Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Here is the Lord through Ezekiel speaking to Israel about her sister Sodom. Which, by the way, is a way of telling Israel you're in wicked sin by saying Sodom is your sister. Your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. This is the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food or indulgence, and prosperous ease. So they're basically prideful and indulgent, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Notice that Ezekiel does not bring up their homosexuality. Thus, here's the argument. The sin in Sodom and Gomorrah is more akin to a lack of hospitality to sojourners or strangers coming into town, not caring for them. They wanted to know them in the sense that they were just hoping to have a meetup. Like, we surrounded the house, 
We'd like to come out. We don't want to sexually know them. We're just wanting to meet them personally. That's why when they're struck blind, they keep groping at the door because they so want to have a personal friendship with these guys, right? They just want to meet them personally, have a little bit of coffee, talk about life, give them some food and goods on their way out. That's essentially how they're... But the problem is essentially they don't really handle that in the way they ought to. They're not really caring for them. They're lacking hospitality. It's insane. G.K. Beale said this when he was in Bakersfield at our conference, remember. He was like, context is king and queen and president and prime minister, etc. as we answer a question about the text. What is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah when they want to know these men? It is clearly homosexuality. How do I know that? First, look there at verse 6 in Lot's response. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. If they're just wanting to get to know him, why would he say, do not act so wickedly? Secondly, verse 7, and said, I beg you, my brothers, after he says, don't, do not act so wickedly, verse 8, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. We all know what that means. He does not mean his daughters have never met a male who've not known any man, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Lot's offer to do to his daughters as they please tells us exactly what was meant by we want to know them. They wanted to know these men in the same way that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and they conceived. This Hebrew word, is also used for sexual knowing. In, in fact, Genesis, Adam knew his wife, Genesis 4.1, Eve, and they conceived and bore a son. Listen to what Jude, another book in the Bible, tells us, verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, clear? And pursued unnatural desire. You understand what that means? Homosexual desire is not natural desire. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. They indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Friends, the Bible clearly opposes homosexuality in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The Bible calls it an evil against nature and an evil against biblical revelation. In other words... It is both a natural and a moral evil. We know it's sin because nature cries out against it. We know it's sin because the Bible cries out against it. Both books of God's revelation. You know we have two books of revelation from God. The book of nature and the book of scripture. Both books of God's revelation tell us it's sin. It's obvious what a man is. And what a woman is. It is the insanity of sin that keeps someone from being able to clearly answer that question. It's obvious. It's obvious what the purpose and fittingness of our sexual organs are. It's obvious. I hear this specious argument a lot. I heard it in debate, in fact, in 2008 that I was in at the Fox Theater over the gay marriage law. And and here's the argument. 
But there are animals in the animal kingdom who sometimes participate in homosexual acts. Therefore, it's natural. To which I want to say, so what? Even if I accept that you're an animal, you're a rational animal. There are also animals who, if you put enough food in front of them, will eat themselves to death. So should you do that? There are animals who will eat their own young. Natural. Eat your children. Right? That's natural. If the animals do it, we should do it. You do not have to act on your base impulses because you're a human being. You can exercise self-control. You have rational capacities. Further, the Bible is clear about homosexuality in the Old Testament and New Testament. Leviticus 18.22. Let's see if this is clear enough for you. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Any lack of clarity there? Well, but that's in the Old Testament. You guys hear that one? It also says in Leviticus not to eat shellfish. I hear this argument all the time. It's why you need to understand how covenants work. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. This is in the New Covenant. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, who will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, in the English Standard Version, we have tamed that last phrase, men who practice homosexuality. I will tell you, it's two words in the Greek. It's two Greek words, one of which refers to the passive actor in homosexuality, and another which refers to the active actor in the act of homosexuality. I'll say no more than that. You understand what I'm saying. 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul says that the law condemns the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is counted as sound doctrine. Unclear? But what about Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50? What about that text? Well, friends, again, the context matters. Context matters. Ezekiel is a prophet condemning Israel, namely Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, for her spiritual idolatry and all the wickedness that flows from her spiritual idolatry. So we're going to look at that passage. Look at Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. You're about two-thirds of the way into your Bible in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16. And verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. So Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel, when Israel gets split into Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom which later becomes called Samaria, is already carried off to the Assyrians 100 years prior to this. Now, 100 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah is about to be carried off into Babylon. Okay, so here's what we get. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. This is not complimentary language. You come from this pagan people. Essentially, this is 
significantly insulting language, if you will. You're basically of pagan birth, idolatrous pagan birth, pagan lands. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of the things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you abhorred on the day you were born. In other words, Israel, when you were born as a nation, as a people, essentially like a baby who's exposed. Do you guys know what that means? We, thank God, are not practicing that in America. There are a few sick people who do this, but as a culture-wide thing, we're not practicing exposure. Exposure is you give birth and you just throw the baby out on the trash heap after the baby's born. That was practiced in this culture. That was practiced in the Roman Empire. Christians actually were known for taking those babies in who were exposed and raising them. That was one of the things they became known for. But he's saying, essentially, you're like a child who's exposed. You basically are born to pagan parents, born in a pagan land, and no one cared about you. You were like an exposed child. In other words, what he's saying is, Israel, I'm the only one who's ever cared for you truly. So he's going to go on to say that. And when I passed by you, here's the Lord speaking, verse 6, and when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. So here's what happened. I took you when you were small and pagan and no one cared about you. And I betrothed myself to you as your husband and you as my bride. And I cleansed you from your sin. And I wrapped you in garments and made you beautiful and cared for you and you were essentially like a queen and you were glorious and the nations were coming to you because of your glory. You guys now thinking of the, the height of Israel's kingdom under King Solomon where the nations are coming in, bringing their gifts, wanting to hear from the wise king. I brought you all the way there because of my love for you as my wife. Verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men. And with them 
played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set them before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Do you hear what he's getting after? The Lord is saying, I did all this for you. I cared for you. I betrothed you to myself. I covenanted with you. I brought you to these days of glory. And what did you do? You pursued idolatry. You took everything I gave you and turned it into occasion for idolatry. You found other husbands, other gods to worship to the point where you started sacrificing your children to Molech, to false gods. No matter how much I blessed you, you took all that blessing All that blessing, and you made it an occasion for pride and indulgence that is rooted in spiritual idolatry. That's what you did with it. And you cast your children to Molech. Now, friends, I want you to know Jesus is going to say this problem is even more acute for us. Even more acute. We've cast our children to Molech too. It's called abortion. Tens of millions of babies. For what? The idolatry of feminism. Let's face it. So we've killed tens of millions of children. We've taken all the blessings God's given us as a nation, which he has blessed us in so many ways, and it's made us prideful, and indulgent, and idolatrous, and wicked. I do not mean God covenanted with America in the same way he covenanted with Israel. Do not hear me saying that. I just mean that whenever God blesses a people abundantly, and they turn that into an occasion for idolatry, they are in principle doing the same thing Israel did. That's what I mean. You're going to see that Samaria and Sodom are accused of the same. So go down to verse 26. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, by the way, just so you know. Your lustful neighbor is multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. That's not good. Verse 28, you played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them. Yes, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea. That's the Babylonians. And even with this, you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. Go down to verse 45. Verse 45, just for the sake of time. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children, who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite and your elder sister is Samaria who lived with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. You hear what's happening here? They're just being compared to pagans all around them. 
Now look what he says. In this context, not only did you, verse 47, walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Israel is now being accused of being worse than Sodom. By the way, Jesus will accuse the people who reject him as being worse than Sodom as well. And he goes on to say this. Behold, verse 49, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease. That's indulgence. But did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. See, Israel was caught up in pride, indulgence, idolatry, sexual sin, and child sacrifice. They looked to their own lusts and cared not for those in need around them. They were selfish, prideful, indulgent, sexually perverse idolaters. And child murderers. And Israel was being compared to Sodom in all of this. And Samaria, and the Hittites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and all of this. While homosexual sin is the presenting problem in Sodom. The root cause of that wickedness in Sodom is ultimately idolatry and worldliness. That's what he's saying. It is pride and indulgence. When a people descends into idolatry and pride and indulgence, it throws off the bonds of authority and and indulges its most wicked and perverse passions. Self-constraint is gone. Even the natural authorities like our bodies are cast away. Our bodies don't even tell us the truth anymore. There is no authority over me. No ruling governor. No pastor in a church. No husband in a home. No parent. No teacher. No police officer. No one is an authority over me. I do what I want when I want, and who are you to question me? That is my identity. It's who I am. I am told all the time, you do you, and that's what I'm doing. Nobody has authority. Even my own body has no authority over me. That's like the last straw. The voice of nature is silenced in exchange for our perverted passions. The voice of scripture is silenced in exchange for our perverted passions. And this is demonstrated in sodomite relationships. It is demonstrated in homosexuality. Sovereign Grace, whenever a culture rejoices in the wickedness of homosexuality, our culture has a whole month. June, my birth month. That's a drag. Our culture rejoices in the wickedness of homosexuality. Be certain that it was prideful idolatry and indulgence that preceded such wickedness. And such wickedness is the result of God's judgment in hardening people in their sins. So look at Romans 1. Romans 1. Now you can see why I had to make this just a one-point sermon. Romans 1. After Paul announces the gospel, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now listen, Why is the power of God for salvation everyone who believes? For in it, 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In other words, in the gospel, what's revealed to me is there's a foreign righteousness, not my own, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is mine by faith. So it's the power of God for salvation. Now, why do I need the foreign righteousness, not my own, found in Christ, received through faith? Why do I need that? For, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's to stand over the truth and push it down like you're the authority. For, in other words, to take authority over what is obviously true, to declare it not true. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Anybody who says that they do not know that there's a God and that they do not know that they're in sin and that they do not know that God condemns them for their sin is a liar. They are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Now their conscience might be so seared that they no longer see themselves lying, but they are. They are. God is, and he's clearly perceived in the things that have been made. And they know judgment is coming for them, and they deserve death for their sin. How do I know that? Just look at the very end of this passage, all the way down, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. See, they know it. They not only do them, but get of approval to those who practice them. Every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth is without excuse. We have all stood before God and knowing full well what was right and wrong, we rejected the truth and walked in unrighteousness. Now look what he goes on to say, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise... They became fools. Man, if that's almost like the banner we should fly over our culture presently. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they just dove headlong into idolatry. They created their own gods. Now look what he goes on. Therefore, how's God's wrath presently being revealed? That's what it says in verse 18. God's wrath is presently being revealed. How so? Not that there's not a future wrath to come, but there's a present wrath being revealed. How so? Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, verse 26 God gave them up. Notice that's twice. 24, now 20. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions. What are those dishonorable passions? For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, verse 28, God gave them up a third time. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, 
covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let me ask you a question. Is God's wrath presently being revealed against us? Yes. How do we know? God has given us over to a debased mind to do the things that ought not to be done. We can see it all around us, friends. We can see it all around us. God's wrath is presently being revealed in that God turned them over to their sins. That's not the fullness of God's wrath, though. God's judgment, his wrath is coming in fullness when Jesus returns. Jesus is coming back and as the judge of all the earth, he's bringing his recompense with him. Sodom did not believe that. You'll see later that Lot's sons-in-law didn't believe it either. But Sodom was wrong. And friends, the regional judgment of Sodom, the regional judgment of Sodom is a warning to all who do not turn to Christ now. Listen to what Jesus said. This isn't me making this up. This is what Jesus said. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So you need to repent and trust Christ. You need to repent and trust in Christ. I'm going to deal with repentance a little bit more next week because we're going to see Lot's wife not really repentant and Lot repentant, but they both look like a mess in some ways. Repent and trust Christ. Warn your friends. Even if they laugh at you as Lot's son-in-laws did to him. Let's be clear. We need to remember We need to remember Sodom because in many ways, this whole world is Sodom. And you're increasingly feeling the reality of this world being Sodom, aren't you? For the first time in their lives, I've seen Christians feel like I live in a state that can't possibly be my home. It's so unsettling. My righteous soul is tormented living in this state like Lot's was. I don't want to live here. I don't feel at home here. I need to move to a state where I can feel at home once again. I'm not saying everybody's moving for that reason. But there are some to which I want to say to them, you're never supposed to feel at home here on this planet. Whether it's a blue state or a red state, you shouldn't feel at home. The fact that you feel unsettled like a sojourner for the first time in your life demonstrates how blinded we were by how easy we had it. We should feel like we don't belong because we don't. Like Peter says of Lot, living in this world is increasingly tormenting your righteous soul over the lawless deeds that you see and hear. In fact, Jesus warns that it will be worse for those who reject him than for Sodom. Listen to what Jesus says. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Speaking of Capernaum, You will be brought down to Hades. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, the Son of God is walking around doing mighty works. Had they been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. In other words, Jesus is saying Sodom would have repented. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, if you are not trusting him, if you're not trusting the Son of God who took humanity to himself and came to keep the law for you, if you're not trusting in the Christ who came to pay the penalty for your sin at the cross, if you're not trusting in the Savior who's come to conquer death and bring forgiveness of sins and justification in his resurrection, if you're not trusting in Jesus who came to pour out the Holy Spirit so that you might have life, then I urge you to remember Sodom and repent of your sins. For if you do not, it will be worse for you on the day of judgment than it was for Sodom. Let me end with, really pull it to an end with 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. You don't have to turn there. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I read this to you already, this first part. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, passive and active parties, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If I end there as a full stop, guess what? You're damned. Next phrase, and such were, hear that past tense? Such were some of you. He's talking to the church of Corinth. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This is the hope for us all. Believe in Christ and repent of your sins, and you'll be washed, sanctified, and justified. Children, you may be too young to have committed some of the wicked sin that we see in the world and in this passage, but you are sinners too. You need Jesus to save you, to cleanse you of your sin, to forgive you, to justify, declare you righteous, and to sanctify you. The Lord has placed you in a Christian home and a Christian church. The Lord has been gracious to you. He holds out his hand to you with the gospel through your parents and through your church. And if you slap it away, then children, please understand it will be worse for you than it is for Sodom on the day of judgment. So trust in Christ. Trust in him. Sovereign Grace, I want to leave you with a thought to chew on for next week. We feel increasingly uncomfortable here And that feeling is appropriate for sojourners. We are sojourners living in the strange land of Sodom. This place is not our home. We should not lay down our roots here. And to that we'll turn next week. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see your word as clearly as it is written. That we would not allow our own sin and idolatry to stand in the way of our repentance. Of our hearing what the Spirit says to the churches through the Word of God, that we would not occlude the Word 
with claims of a lack of clarity, where it says things we just don't like, that would understand it rightly, that we would apply it rightly, that our hearts would be transformed. We pray that you would cause us to trust in Jesus and him alone for the forgiveness of our sins, our justification. We pray that you would cause us to to have whole-souled repentance, to repent of our sin and of our very selves, our disordered passions and desires, the ways in which we're given over to all the justifications that we have for wicked behavior. Put that to death in us. Cause us by your Spirit to become more like Jesus from one degree of glory to another. We know this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And we pray for those who do not trust in Christ that you will cause them to trust in him, to grow in grace as they do, to be united to your church and to walk with us in the love of God and the love of neighbor, trusting in Christ all the days of their life. In Jesus' name, amen.